You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with attorney Lee Merritt. Merritt is one of today's most prominent social activists. His clients include the families of Ahmad Arbery and Jordan Edwards. Many see the murders of Arbery and Edwards as examples of the lack of concern and questionable justice America gives to black lives. They are also the kinds of cases Merritt gravitates to. He came of age in South Central Los Angeles during the early 1990s. It was not an easy environment for a young black man, but for Merritt, it was home. From the ground level, you know, I remember going to the beach with my grandpa and flying kites. I remember, um, you know, Lamert Park, which had a beautiful African-American culture. Uh, where in, in, in Lamert Park Square, where we would uh, celebrate Afrocentricity and ideas around, surrounding Afrocentricity. I, I attended West Angeles Church of God in Christ. Uh, which was pretty cool as a kid because you could see people like Eddie Murphy or Denzel or some of the celebrities at church. Um, but yeah, I grew up tethered to the prison industrial complex as well. My father was a, uh, a member of the Rolling Sixties Crips, uh, neighborhood Crip gang there. And uh, so were most of the men in my family. And so that was, uh, I was culturalized into that as well. My earliest memories of my dad are, are writing, getting letters from some men in prison. And I would write letters back, and I and I, I can recall as a child, 
having to go through the process of being screened so I can visit my dad in jail. Um, and and that, that also, of course, became true of almost everyone, every male figure, at least, that I met there, all of my brothers, all of my cousins, all of my uncles had gone through the prison industrial complex at some point, and it became sort of an expectation. You know, you, you've heard the common phrase, you, you know, you're, only, you're either going to end up dead or in jail. But that was, that was a real-life expectation for uh, our community. It was just something that we, we came to know would, would probably be the end result of whatever endeavor we, we found ourselves on. Here's what's interesting to me. You know, sometimes I get mad at the idea of the stereotypical play out that the media gives to anybody like yourself who grew up in South Central. I grew up in Detroit. You know, there's this sense of just as, as, as that is. Yet for some people, that was reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was it like for you to have the push and pull of that world and and the pull of not wanting to go down that same road? Well, I I was constantly encouraged by mentors, by family members that, you know, that I couldn't do what everyone else was doing because I would, you know, it put me at risk was the term that that, that was really popular in in pop culture. I was an at-risk youth. Um, and, and so I bought into the idea that I could look at people like my dad as examples of what not to do. Right? Uh, so if my dad had tattoos and he was heavily tatted, I was like, all right, no tattoos. You know, if my dad drank or smoked, uh, then I could avoid those things in order to get some, some sort of a different outcome. And so, that, you know, that, that was my experience. Um, but, but the push and pull of it is that I admired my dad. He looked like a superhero. He was this big, huge, you know, muscular gang member that people feared um, and, and respected. And, and I wanted to have that kind of same gravitas and respect as well. Uh, I had a moment when my dad was charged with a crime and he decided to represent himself as a pro se litigant. And to see him stand up in court and, you know, not scream, but use his baritone voice to command the attention of the jury to the judge. It wasn't successful for him because he didn't know anything about the law. But I, I, I admired that. And um, the fear factor that they placed on the community, I, I, I came to appreciate that, um, you know, people talk about fearing God. It's a reverence and respect. The people naturally are, gonna, are, are forced to respect me because of my background and because of, um, you know, the things that I had to survive to get where I am. And that part of the culture I, I embraced. Give me a sense, man. You talk about that moment. Uh, so obviously there was a legal connection. Um, you know, give me a sense of also, it was also the Rodney King era. Mm-hmm. You know, and we'll get to Johnny Cochran in a minute, uh, you know, who both of us admired. And I count him as one of my mentors. But how much of what played out in L.A. eventually led you to say, I not only want to become a lawyer, but I want to try to adjust justice. Yeah. I have to give credit to something that you would expect, but it's probably uh, uh, le- people will put less of an emphasis on it. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Hollywood gave us the opportunity to see people like Denzel Washington playing roles as the lawyer in Philadelphia as a kid. And, um, you know, to be fully himself and unique and beautiful um, um, black, uh, but to be, to, to operate in white spaces, uh, like he, like he did in the movie Philadelphia. And I was, I was a big Denzel fan as a kid. He also attended my church. So that helped. 
and I got to know his son coming up. And, um, you know, his movies like uh, Cry Freedom about um, Bantu Stephen Biko and his fight against police brutality uh, was really formative for me at the same time that, you know, Rodney King in the first viral police brutality video I was spreading across the country. And then heroes like Johnny Cochran began to emerge as people who, you know, we were used to the same old thing, right? Um, the outcomes that of, of, of the Rotten King case and the Latasha Harlings case and these atrocities that took place. And then the justice system would tell us that we would just have to grit and bear it. Uh, and I admire people like the, the fictional characters that Denzel played, or I, I take that back, the historical figures that Denzel played, both from Malcolm to uh, Stephen B. Cole to even Patrice Lumumba. Um, and the, um, the, the real life heroes of, of people like Johnny Cochran and people who demonstrated that through the law, you can make a difference. Um, you know, at that time, Clinton stepped, uh, was sort of stepping into the scene as the first black president. And I knew that he was a lawyer. Uh, I was a huge Nelson Mandela fan as a kid. And a lot of, a lot of things were going on with South Africa, apartheid. And Mandela made his rounds in, in the United States. Um, and I, I grew to admire people who could use the law to shape society. Uh, let's get to another thing that I'm sure shaped you, and that's your alma mater down there in uh, ATL. Give me a sense of what Morehouse brought to you. Yeah, and I, and I have to give Hollywood credit for that as well for a moment. Um, you know, the first time I was introduced to even attending college was after Boys in the Hood. And at, at the end of the movie, one of the main pro- uh, progenitors of the, of the film, um, you know, just in a, in a brief, Caption said he went to Morehouse College, and it made me ask myself, you know, what is that? And eventually, I met some Morehouse men in the community uh, that I was around. Mr. Robert Davison, who actually had his name on on one of the buildings out there, and he was also, you know, a friend of the family. Um, he got to know my grandmother, and and so she introduced me to him. And he said, and I didn't know what this meant at the time. He said, "You carry yourself like a Morehouse man," and I didn't know, you know, what that meant, but it felt like a compliment. <laughs> and um, and at that time, I fancied myself as an athlete and as a rapper. Um, and um, I was I was going to school uh, to play ball, uh, to play football. And I, I met with him in his home, and he interviewed me with his sons, uh, who had attended some of the nicer private schools in the area. And there was these really, you know, again, fully black, fully articulate um, uh, young men and family. Um, that, that showed me another angle of our community that is often underportrayed, right? And then I went to Morehouse, and it was a campus full of just the most diverse, uh, charismatic, talented young men that you can imagine. And we were all challenging each other to do better. We were competing like we competed in the streets, uh, but we weren't competing for chains or gold or girls. We were competing for uh, to win the debate team, or we were Honda Quiz Bowl champions four years straight. Um, and I got into student government there and we was able to compete with people with their ideas and, and leadership. Um, and it was it was a transformative experience. I, I, um, I know that, that that was where I belonged. I think that all young black men should attend uh, HBCUs. You know, there's a myth going around that HBCUs don't prepare you for the real world. I think the opposite is true. Um, if you're culturalized in a predominantly white institution that doesn't tell you who you are and how powerful you actually can be. And how influential you can be, uh, you miss the. You, you might miss out on on uh, really fully understanding your true power. 
One real-life giant who influenced Merritt was attorney Johnny Cochran. Like many, Merritt was part of a generation that was influenced by the charismatic Los Angeles civil rights attorney. Cochran was known for representing clients of color wronged or underserved by a justice system that was not colorblind. By the 1990s, his involvement in a number of high-profile cases, including the lead defense attorney during the infamous O.J. Simpson trial, made Cochran arguably America's best-known lawyer. Let's talk Johnny Cochran. Give me a sense of what he was for you. Well, the... um. Before I, I went into practice, my first job out of law school was working for the Cochran firm. Law was the second career for me, so I started off teaching. I did teach for America in Camden, New Jersey. At the time, it was the most dangerous city in America, the poorest city in America. And, um, and I coached basketball there, and, and I eventually went down to Atlanta and coached as well. But once I graduated from law school, uh, my first job was really was with a, a, a law firm while I was still a student. I law clerk at a uh, Wapner Newman Wigreiser, uh, which was a, a, a fairly well-established law firm in the Philadelphia area. And they had been sort of uh, bought into the, the Cochran brand um, and, and, and participated in the national Cochran firm. But my experience with the Wapner Newman end of it was that they weren't interested in the advocacy that I had grown to admire Cochran for. I never had a chance to meet him in life. I only met him um, or, or got to know him from afar. Uh, by the time I was practicing law, he had passed away. Um, and so as I sort of matriculated and learned to practice the law, I, I started to push back on the partners that I was working for to say, you know, if we're going to have the Cochran name, it's not enough just to bring black faces into the firm. Let's take on some of the the issues that we're facing in the city of Philadelphia. And there were economic issues, housing rights issues. Of course, there were police brutality issues. Uh, it was one of the most incarcerated cities in America at the time. And I said, why don't, why don't we take this on? <laughs> and they, they asked the question that most businessmen ask, how does that make us money? <laughs> right. 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 So, um, and, and they weren't, you know, they weren't so keen on doing that. And so I, I branched off and I started my own practice, but it was very much inspired by the, the framework that, that Cochran had laid out. When we come back, the Morehouse effect criticism of today's activism and will the system find justice for George Floyd like many of us you might think identity theft will never happen to you but consider this there's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year 
at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. During his years at Morehouse, Merritt would befriend a man who would become a fellow activist. Sean King has become a force in the fight against police injustice. King has become one of the harshest critics of America's justice system. He and Merritt took up their fight for justice together on the yard in Atlanta. So Sean was a, a, a senior on campus by the time that I got there. Uh, very well respected. He was the uh, student government president and he, he spoke at our first new student orientation. Um, and and the, the Morehouse NSO is a part, of a, a part of the rites of passage. Morehouse runs itself very much like a fraternity. And so there are rituals uh, that we that we perform in getting inducted. And he was at the climax of it. And was this young articulate brother uh, telling this class of men, challenging this class of men that, that you know, for, it is for us for whom the bell tolls that we were being called uh, to answer um, the, the, the dreams or the demands or the cries of our ancestors. And, you know, I was just blown away by Sean. <laughs> and so um, um, I, I got to know him personally. I got to know his story. Uh, and they found out that, you know, we were we were very much uh, alike or at least aligned in our goals. He, he, he was, of course, from Kentucky. I'm, I'm from Los Angeles, so regionally different. But we were both the young brothers in the dashikis with the bullhorns organizing the community and, and, and trying to whip up this really talented group of young men uh, to serve the community. It's just it, it's, uh, it's always where our heart lies. 
Um, and we, we weren't from generational Morehouse, right? They're, they're, they're Morehouse men whose grandfathers and great-grandfathers went to Morehouse. But both Sean and I were first-generation first high school graduates, let alone college attendants. And so uh, we identified with each other there. And we were kind of um, seen as outsiders in a sense that, um, you know, we, we spent a lot more time asking what we could do for West End than what, uh, and that's where the school was located in the West End of Atlanta, than, you know, what we got out of Morehouse or, you know, who was going to line up for the party buses at the end of the day. Sean, Sean being a young preacher, uh, I was a young chaplain and, and, and involved in the student government as well. And we were we we got to know each other through our SGA ties and through our political ties, and and we've kept in contact since, and we've developed you know a lifetime friendship from it. Let me ask you about some of the criticism, fair or unfair, that has been lodged not only toward Sean but the generation of fighters who are out there now, and this has been lodged quite frankly from white establishment and by some. Uh, African-Americans, typically older generation. And that is that this line of fighters does not understand nuance, does not understand gray. Uh, it's always black or white. And uh, typically it is, no, there's no allowance for our side being wrong or nuanced and why a, a, an arrest may have happened or the like. What do you say to to that criticism? I think society is more polarized, right? We, it's, we see it play itself out um, clearer anywhere than in Washington, D.C., where, um, you, know, you know, black people, for example, are, are seen as Democrats, but, you know, black people, as, as Obama said in his book, um, um, black people believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood for the redemption of their sins, like the conservatives, right? Black people feel, um, um, uh, feel believe in the gun rights. Black people have some very conservative values, but we're not allowed to stand on those in, in society today um, because it's so black and white. It's either you're fully left or you're fully right. And I think um, if you speak to Sean or some of the young leaders, Tamika Mallory, uh, myself, you, you will find that we're probably more nuanced than the media portrays us. Uh, that, that, but it's easier to tell the narrative from somebody who was either on one on either side of a line. Um, but I find even to points that are, that are annoying <laughs> that Sean and I disagree on things that are that we're supposed to be according to this line on the same side of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you talk about the police having the presumption of credibility. And that is one of those things If we go back to Hollywood and, and your examples earlier, that is certainly a, uh, uh, a frame of reference for Hollywood for many years. You know, I think about the FBI TV series, every movie, the G-Men, the Untouchables, that, and that kind Dragnet of- Dragnet in LA. Yeah. Dragnet, exactly. How, how much of that has been um, a huge hurdle to get over? Give yeah. me a sense of how that presumption of credibility um, has been, uh, I, I think, arguably, maybe even the biggest hurdle to get over. Yeah, no. So, of course, in the courtroom, that's that's our biggest obstacle. A law enforcement officer can take the stand and make a statement. That statement can be inconsistent with the physical evidence, with other witnesses, and a video of what actually happened. And for whatever reason, the jury will still have a bias towards believing what law enforcement says. And, and it's something that has been culturalized in us. 
um, that when police speak, they speak with authority, they speak the truth. Um, and and it, it, has, it has served as a major obstacle uh, in advocating for families. Uh, and it goes back to the question you asked a moment ago about nuance, right? Um, it, because in order to challenge the idea that there were the presumption of credibility by law enforcement officers, we have to um, present the sort of the counter narrative. And the counter narrative is I've never seen a police report that was 100% accurate. Um, the police reports are, are, are all, I say almost, but always in my experience, uh, in, in, it includes misstatements, misrepresentations, and direct lies uh, about what happened um, in, in a particular incident. Um, we, we live in an age now where there are a lot more video, uh, video cameras um, from surveillance cameras attached to businesses to body-worn cameras by law enforcement officers, and of course, uh, the camera phones. And so we, when, when I found myself successful in cases, it's because we have evidence that will directly contradict what a law enforcement officer says. And it gives us that impeachment evidence that we need to challenge them um, before a jury. And we're beginning to erode away the myth that law, that law enforcement is infallible. Um, but it, it, it still remains one of the biggest hurdles that we face. How much of it is a fair rebuke in today's world, I mean, it is as divided as I can remember that there is room for the other side to say, yeah, you're right, there is a presumption of credibility, um, but there is now a presumption of guilt to anything police do. Yeah, well, I, I think that that presumption, when we talk about how scales and balance, it's necessary, right? Uh, I think that as a society and in my practice and even in my advocacy, I want to challenge the idea of the virtualness of the position itself. I, I think that the entire police force is necessarily corrupted by a culture that has a bad mission. And so I, I, um, we often talk about the problems uh, that we're facing as a community um, from law enforcement, from the deadliest police culture in the modern world uh, as an issue of training. And it's not an issue of training. It's an issue of mission. Uh, and, and, and it's necessary to start to tell the truth about law enforcement. Where did it come from? Um, what is its purpose historically? And where does that, how has that purpose shifted over time? And so we know historically uh, that, you know, and, and, and this is now a part of the common uh, narrative that historically law enforcement is, is from slave catchers, that in order to maintain slave culture uh, and between states that we hired sheriffs and rangers to return African-Americans to slavery, to keep uh, the races uh, separate, to monitor uh, enslaved people as they, they pass from one plantation to the next. Uh, with, with, the, with the end of slavery, uh, with the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, law enforcement began to be repurposed. Uh, their purpose now was to keep those newly freed blacks who probably wanted revenge away from the white community that led us to our, our era of segregation. Um, the Jim Crow era ended, law enforcement still uh, exists uh, in, 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 in large part uh, to over police inner city communities that are seen, uh, seen as where the criminals lie. Uh, we started a, a Fox war, a so-called war on drugs that really plays out as a war on black and brown communities. And law enforcement have been tasked with being the soldiers of that war. And their job is to go in to stop, frisk, harass, ticket, 
um, police redline and keep black people in, in a state of oppression. It doesn't matter if their skin is black. It doesn't matter if they signed up with noble atten- intentions. That is the, the, the mission of their field, to, to feed the largest prison industrial complex in human history. Um, and so I, I think necessarily we have to talk, uh, I have to say that the narrative is that as, as, a, as a position, as a profession, it is inherently uh, a vice, not a virtue. It is a bad profession until we change that. Until we change the mission, I think they all, all law enforcement officers should be painted with that broad brush. Um, so that we can, and, and again, the purpose of doing that is not to uh, c- condemn individual officers, but until we change the mission, we're going to continue to get the same result. A few days after this interview, Samiria Rice, whose 12-year-old son, Tamir, was playing with a toy gun in a park and was killed by Cleveland police in 2014, complained about many of today's Black Lives Matter activists. She named a number including Merritt, saying they were, quote, chasing clout, end quote, rather than really fighting for justice. Again, this interview was days before Rice went public with her concerns. In some cases um, and in some corners, there are quiet uh, criticisms in some ways or concerns about Black leadership because it seems for some that you're just showing up at press conferences and funerals, but the um, actions that need to be taken aren't being taken by Black leadership. In your mind, uh, fair criticism, or is it just far more daunting than the average person knows? I, I think it's a fair criticism when you show up to funerals and press conferences uh, and and maybe you resolve a case for some sort of fiduciary amount uh, because that's the only damages available in the civil courts. However, I, you know, pointing to Ahmaud Arbery, I think that's a good, a good example. It, it seems like you said almost a case of low-hanging fruit. These vigilantes broke the law in broad daylight and recorded it, and uh, they should rightfully end up in jail. And, you know, God willing, when a, when a trial date is set, they'll be convicted. However, it is, in fact, deeper than that. Uh, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery is reflective of a deeper systemic issue uh, because we didn't hear about it until 74 days later. And the reason we didn't hear about it is because the legal apparatus of South Georgia went about doing what it was designed to do, which was to protect white supremacy. Uh, in this case, you did have a police officer, a former police officer, who immediately invoked, invoked his white privilege. He called the district attorney who, who he used to work for who, because of, of, for obvious reasons, had to conflict herself out of the case, but passed the case on to another one of his personal friends, someone he knew uh, from that community. And he, he wrote a scathing uh, summary of what happened that made Ahmad appear to be the culprit, as opposed to the victim and the culprits to be the victims themselves. Uh, this is what happens in our system. Um, and, 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 and I have to, you know, take hats off to the, the organizing community, to the Sean Kings, to Tamika, uh, to Tamika Ballers, to Ben Crump and our office. So we didn't stop at the three villains. Initially, they only wanted to give us two. They wanted to give us Gregory McMichael and Travis McMichael and, and, um, the black community began to respond. Why was this recorded in broad daylight? Who was this man recording it? And so they had to go back and arrest and criminalize William, um, Roddy Bryan as well. And we didn't stop there in, in the filing of the most recent lawsuit. We brought a lawsuit against the Glen County um, 
Police Department. We brought a lawsuit against Greg, uh, George Barnhill uh, and the initial uh, dis- district attorney, Jackie Johnson, who referred the case over to him to show, to point out specifically uh, the, system- the systemic problems, how, how white supremacy is a team sport and how they work together uh, to murder Ahmad and to justify it in the media and, and to kill the story so that, that the rest of us didn't hear about it for 74 days. And that's the work that you do beyond uh, the funeral. That's the work that you do beyond the press conference. You have to dig in and find out, you know, these aren't isolated incidents. They continue to happen because a system exists that allow them to happen until we start to try to root out the, the deeper systemic problems that will continue to happen. Here's the interesting part of what I see with social media beyond the idea of it getting out there and, and being able to show us um, in so many cases, uh, murders that would not have come to light outside of that camera uh, on that phone. But here's what it also does. I'm wondering how you attack it as a lawyer. You want to build a sense of people knowing who your client is or put a face to a name. But when those names and faces start to stack one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, it does move down, uh, you know, a rung on the ladder. Uh, I think about Ahmed Aubrey and then Breonna Taylor. And I mean, it just, you know, it just starts to move down. How do you combat something like that? Can you combat something like that? That that has to be the most difficult part of my practice. My first um, wrongful death case was a 15 year old named Jordan Edwards and the, the community that lost that 15 year old boy who was doing nothing but leaving a high school party when his car was riddled with bullets, they still deserve justice. That case is still in court. Uh, the, uh, the officer was convicted, was the first conviction out of Dallas County for a police officer in 40 years. Uh, but most people don't even know his name. Um, and, and you would think that hit, you know, that loss from the family would be enough to be a wake-up call. It would be the Emmett Till moment. But we don't have Emmett Tills anymore because Emmett Till happens every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, again, the deadliest police culture in the modern world that, kill, that kills at least three people a day. Um, and so it's really what stores you on earth. There's, there's, there's cases like a Tatiana Jefferson that should have been enough. Uh, a young woman completely innocent in her home playing video games with her nephew when a law enforcement officer uh, violated the law approached her home uh, and shot her through the window. But it, it, wasn't, um, it, it wasn't because right after Tatiana Jefferson came, or uh, Tatiana Jefferson actually came on the heels of both from Jean, just in the Dallas area alone. Uh, and the, the names just keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming. And so until we start to discuss this as a systemic issue, it's, it's the same principle, I think, with the 60s. Uh, it's easy to take out leaders, you know, of the, of the original civil rights movement. If if the community is bought in to following the direction of a single leader or charismatic individuals, but if we if we buy into the idea that our job is to change the system, is to change outcomes, then the names become less important, uh, and the structures become more important, and the policy becomes more important. And so now, what we're trying to do, and what I'm hoping. Uh, that this generation uh, takes on is, is is challenging things like qualified immunity. Um, qualified immunity is an issue that that is is uh, the family of George Floyd will have to face, that a Tatiana Jefferson's family will have to face, that Jordan Edwards' family is still struggling with now. Um, and, and when we start getting into these broader thre- 
things. Like if you look at the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, mm-hmm. it talks about expanding the federal power uh, to investigate these cases because part of the, the real problem is that police are allowed to investigate themselves in these cases. Um, and it's, it should be no surprise that they often find a justification for even the most egregious acts, like the murder of both Majan and his apartment. Law enforcement testified in court that that was justified according to their training. Uh, and so I'm hoping that the answer to our inability really to keep up with the hashtags and the names is that we will, fo- will shift our attention to the actual causes, go a little further up the river um, to to who's throwing the babies in the river as opposed to just pulling the babies out of the river one one body at a time. Jury selection is ongoing for the Derek Chauvin trial. Chauvin is the officer charged with the murder of George Floyd. The trial will certainly be watched by all with bated breath. I wondered if Merritt is concerned that this trial may end up as another miscarriage of justice, like many other police trials have in the eyes of most African Americans. I guess instead of concern, I'm somewhat hopeful that if that is the outcome, and mind you, uh, if history is any uh, dictate, it is the likely outcome that these officers walk or receive uh, a slap on the wrist at best. If that is the outcome, then people will begin to say it is not enough to advocate for one name at a time, but we do have to go further up the river. What I, what I think we saw this last year, uh, with starting with um, you know the coronavirus and everyone being at home and this brutal murder of Ahmaud Arbery on tape, uh, followed by Breonna Taylor, followed by George Floyd, and the, and the national attention was that people said, hold on, you know, this is a systemic problem and that, you know, we need to deal with the leadership on down uh, uh, to address it. I, I, I am hopeful that if there is a negative outcome, um, that people will use that as a reminder that it's not all better now that Trump's not in office. Trump was never the real problem. The problem was the society, um, the policies, the procedures, um, the whole culture, the policing culture, uh, the the mass incarceration era, which is a relatively new engine um, that we must take on. And that, you know, getting rid of the boogeyman of this Trump is not going to be enough, but we have to do the real long term work uh, to get ourselves out of this hole. Lee, lastly, give me a sense of what you'd like the community to do. I think we've been too, and I'm talking decades now, reactionary. You know, we move when something happens as opposed to laying a foundation to help stop the next whatever it is. What would you like to see? What would assist you um, in, in moving the needle in helping fight the fight? It's my hope that the community will take on the, the mantra uh, that is sort of my personal mantra that it, it's on us that any change that we want to see in society is not going to come from any superhero. It's not the next great civil rights leader. It's not the most articulate presidential or political candidate. Uh, But it is our personal responsibility to take ownership of our community. Uh, That means showing up to the school board meetings and jury duty. Uh, That means if if you have a poor prosecutor in your community that you run for prosecutor, you identify someone within the community that you do trust to uphold the law. Uh, it is, it's my hope that we, again, begin to realize our own power. You know, during the, during the 70s and even part of the 80s, we began to explore the idea of Black power. Uh, but it was more like an, a mantra or, or a motivational saying. Uh, I, I believe that we, in fact, have amassed a great deal of power that we're still asleep to. And I'm hoping that we will wake up and begin to exercise it in our communities and demand outcomes. Um, 
and begin, for example, not to take no for an answer. There's no way that Officer Derek Chauvin, no matter what the court determines, uh, should be back on the streets. Uh, um, that if if this court system fails, then we as a people can say, no, we're going to continue to pursue this until we have justice and we won't be denied. My thanks once again to Attorney Lee Merritt. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.